one of the greatest inventions to come down the pike in recent years was the invention of the YouTube channel, a place where people could go and upload interesting videos and other clips from TV shows and movies of days gone by, back when entertainment was entertainment. Uh, and it really is a godsend, or at least it was when it first began, because there's so little to watch on TV anymore. You subscribe to cable, and there's virtually nothing there. Unfortunately, like everything else, nothing good stays good forever. YouTube is inundated with um, advertising and these stupid ads. And I've seen a couple of these on regular cable TV. Now I'm seeing them on YouTube. From the former governor of the state of New York, Il Duce, Mario Benito, not Mario, um, Andrew Benito Cuomo, the benighted son of Mario. And quite frankly, I think if Mario knew how dumb his son actually was going to turn out to be, he would have traded him in for a pet monkey. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another broadcast of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show. And you can do so in one of three easy ways. Either go to the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store and simply search out The Jamie Dury Show and subscribe directly, or download the free Podbean app, our hosting service, from either of those two locations, and subscribe that way. Either way, you will be notified whenever new shows are uploaded. You can leave comments and reviews, and we really could use both. Please give us a good review, because the more reviews we get, the more readily the show will be found, and the faster it will grow, and the more offerings we'll be able to give you. So I was just watching something on YouTube, and I saw this commercial, and I just couldn't help myself. I was going to speak about something else today, but when I saw that, I just couldn't help myself. I just had to say, you know, the hell with it. We'll do a show tomorrow on what we were going to speak about today. I would like to do a show today, no matter how brief, on this shameless son of a bitch. Now, he doesn't appear in the ad other than his picture. And what you have is you have a woman talking about how he resigned under these allegations of sexual misconduct, Uh, sort of portraying it that he did it for the good of the state and for the good of the people. And then following his resignation, all these district attorneys began investigating, and, and all of them unanimously came to the conclusion, separately, of course, that they weren't going to bring any charges against the governor. And then the voice goes on to say, Governor Cuomo was right. He was innocent. Well, no, that's not exactly true. The fact that a district attorney or any other prosecutor declines to bring a prosecution does not necessarily mean that they thought you were innocent. All it means is that the prosecution perceived difficulty in bringing the prosecution to a successful conclusion. And no one wants to go after a high-profile target unless they think they can win. Uh, Particularly in this case, you have the Attorney General of the State of New York, uh, Letitia uh, James, um, who herself has political aspirations that may include the governor's office, or at least she did, going after the sitting governor. Now, when you go after the sitting governor and you win, that's fine. 
When you go after the sitting governor and you lose, that's not fine. Also, if you're looking to destroy someone um, and you don't think you can get a conviction, it's better off, even though you do believe they're guilty, but there's maybe legal hurdles or uh, issues of proof uh, or relying on testimony that may be uncorroborated because it's a he said, she said in many of these cases. Uh, Very often people will take the position, well, rather than run a trial that we can't win, and risk him being vindicated. What we'll do instead is simply decline prosecution and leave that stigma out there. So you can never claim that he was actually acquitted after a trial and a full presentation of the facts. It also could be that she was threatened by the state Democratic Party, that if he went after the governor uh, in that manner, that they would not support her run for the governor's mansion if she herself decided to run. There was a lot of political considerations. And none of the small um, district attorneys that are involved in these things wishes to come into the sights of the former governor because his family has been entrenched in New York State politics for decades and they have long arms and they're um, vindictive people and willing to hurt people. But this has been some week for the Cuomos. We have... Someone uh, who alleged to have engaged in conduct that most people would just go and hide and bury their head in the sand or under the sheet and never come out in the light of day again. This shameless bastard uh, thinks he's actually going to use the decision to decline prosecution to champion his innocence and go out there and saying how we lost a leader. Just how did we lose a great leader by losing Governor Cuomo? What was so great about Governor Cuomo? Was it the fact that he spent the state into oblivion, like his father before him? Or was it the fact that he sentenced thousands of elderly people to an unnecessary and premature death by exposing them to COVID-19 patients because he was such a whore for federal money? rather than send people to the hospital that Trump had built in the Javits Center or to the hospital ship that he cried for and sent only 100 patients. He instead mandated that nursing homes in New York State accept these patients. Now, I'm one of those people of the group that states this whole thing was a bit of a hustle. COVID-19 was never a pandemic. It was never that deadly. That's not to say that people didn't die from it, but people die from the flu every year, too. No one calls that a pandemic. And we do lose 56,000 people to the flu every year in this country. We lost approximately 335,000 or 30,000 people to COVID-19. So it was maybe six times worse than the worst flu season. And worldwide, we lose 650,000 per annum, up to 650,000. Oh, and by the way, that 330,000 figure, uh, 330,000 figure that I quoted just a moment ago for the United States, that's not for one calendar year. That was for two years since the pandemic began. That was March to March or February to February, however you want to count it, 2020 to 2022. So you divide that in half and you have an average of something on the order of 165,000. So really, only about three times the number of people who die annually of the flu. 
So what the hell was all this bullshit about? We had three times the number of people who died per annum from the flu season die from COVID-19, and the whole country had to stop? The whole world had to stop? And we had infinitely more people infected with COVID-19 than we did with the seasonal flu. Every year, uh, something on the order of uh, 30 million people, 50 million people can get the flu in this country. I think we had many more than that that were affected with COVID-19. So it really isn't any more lethal than the flu in real terms. And worldwide, we're content to have 650,000 people die from the seasonal flu. So in a two-year period, approximately 1.3 million. We've had, I think, 5 million and change die in a two-year period. So it isn't like this increase in death is on the order of magnitude that people should be that concerned or calling it a pandemic. But like any other disease... It's always more lethal to people who are already screwed up, people who are already living in compromised states of health, people who are elderly, people who have compromised immune systems and compromised respiratory systems. So why in God's name would you send COVID-infected 19, COVID-19 infected patients into environments that house people just like those I mentioned, people who are elderly? people with uh, compromised respiratory and immune systems, people in declining states of health. Why would you do it? There's no logic. There's no medical logic. There's no science to it. But he did it. As a consequence of that, thousands of people who would have been perfectly safe being isolated in a nursing home died when they could have lived. And they weren't even allowed to say goodbye to their families and their families weren't allowed to say goodbye to them. This is the great leadership that we lost when they got rid of this Struntz when he resigned. This is what we lost. If this is what we lost, I'd like to lose it every week. Every time we get a schmuck, I'd like to lose Biden the same way. This idiot that's letting Putin run roughshod over Ukraine. And now all of a sudden he wakes up and he wants to have an oil embargo on Russia, but yet they make a deal with Iran, removing restrictions whereby... They can now buy oil from Russia and fill up the pocketbook of Vladimir Putin so he can continue to finance this war of aggression, which he calls a war of liberation in Ukraine. But I digress. This is the genius Cuomo. This is the big genius that we couldn't do without. The same man who writes a book about the murders he's committed, calling it great leadership, takes millions of dollars for it, And then we find out he fudged all the numbers and that he used his staff to write it anyway, which is against the law. And now the state's looking to take the money back. This is the, probably the definition of shameless. If you look up shameless in the dictionary, you probably have to see a picture of Il Duce right next to it. But, you know, it must run in the bloodline. Because we just found out last week that Chris Cuomo is now suing CNN for $125 million, which he says is the balance of the wages that he's owned, plus damages. Now, what kind of damages are there from being fired from CNN? I, look, I realize it's embarrassing to be 
fired from CNN. It's pretty embarrassing just to work there in the first place. But if you were content to be a journalistic whore and work for a communist ideological network like that, and then they fire you, uh, one would think that almost be a step up that you're no longer working for CNN. I mean, he's clearly unemployable. I mean, except maybe, what, CNBC or MSNBC. He's got to go, or maybe NPR. They might pick him up. NPR, they're about as liberal as you get. Uh, But he's not going to go into any mainstream news service. No one's going to pick him up after what he did. So he's essentially unemployable. So you have the benighted former governor and the not exactly sharpest knife in the drawer younger brother of the benighted former governor, the Bobsy twins. Governor Doolittle and journalists do less. So this is what we have that people are talking about with the Cuomos. Uh, actually, people aren't talking enough about the Cuomos. They're letting him get away, for the most part, with, with these commercials, which are, again, shameless. I can't believe that the people of the state of New York would be that stupid to vote for this man, but I've seen dumber things in my time. I remember back when William F. Buckley was still a potent force in the American conservative movement, there was a man who was governor in the state of Connecticut by the name of Lowell Weicker. I take that back. He was a senator in the state of Connecticut, Lowell Weicker. And Lowell Weicker was a Republican in name only. William F. Buckley lived in Connecticut at the time. He lived in Stanford. And he wanted to get Weicker out of the U.S. Senate. So he endorsed independent Joe Lieberman, and they defeated Lowell Weicker. And Lieberman became the senator from Connecticut. Two years later, this man who was outed by his constituents has the audacity to run for governor. And these same constituents who forced him out as governor, thinking he was unsuitable, voted him in as the governor. He wasn't good enough to be the senator, but they voted him in as the governor. And what do you think he did to these stupid masses? People, I've told you before, people generally get the government that they deserve. Well, the people in Connecticut deserved what they got, because prior to that time, the state of Connecticut had no state income tax. And Laura Weicker promptly turned around and engineered the passage of the first ever Connecticut state income tax. And so now Connecticut has joined the ranks of states that have income tax. There's only nine states left that don't have any. So people get what they deserve. That's exactly what you get. Now, moving on, there's one other topic I wanted to cover uh, in today's podcast. Following the Trump administration, the liberals really got their jock knocked off. They were shocked that in a four-year span, Donald Trump was able to appoint three justices to the United States Supreme Court. Now, two were of minor consequence, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch before him, because they were essentially replacing conservative justices. Justice Gorsuch, I believe, replaced um, Justice Scalia, who died rather suddenly, and Justice Kavanaugh, I think, replaced Justice Kennedy, who was sort of a swing vote 
moderate vote. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, a liberal icon. And everyone wanted Trump not to appoint anyone, let the next president do it, saying uh, that's the same argument they made with Obama. Well, not quite, because Donald Trump was one of the few presidents to actually run on the promise that he would appoint certain judges, and he's one of the names he put up. So the people knew who he would appoint if given the opportunity. So when they voted in 2016, they knew exactly what they were voting for. And so it was perfectly appropriate for Donald Trump to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But now that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is gone and the court has tipped 6-3, if you count Roberts, he's not really trustworthy, but it's a solid 5-4. They don't want the court to go 7-2. So they've lobbied heavily for Justice Stephen Breyer to retire. He's the oldest member of the court right now. He was appointed by Bill Clinton. He looks to be in perfectly good health, but anything can happen at that age. But they don't want to risk Breyer outlasting Biden and another conservative getting into the White House and appointing his replacement. So they're forcing Breyer out so they can put a younger, even more liberal judge onto the bench. And so who has Biden selected? Well, he selected Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Or is it Katani Brown Jackson? I never can tell. Fulfilling a promise made during his campaign, not a promise that he thought of, I'm sure, one that was told that he had to do, because he doesn't think about anything anymore. Not that he wouldn't have thought about this when he was younger. To appoint a female black. That's the one demographic we still haven't hit. We've gotten white males, we've had white females, we've had Hispanic females, but we've got no black females, so we've got to fill that. And so they want to put this Judge Brown Jackson onto the bench. It's a problem, though. Judge Jackson isn't simply liberal. She's an absolute ultra-left-wing ideologue, and she has no business being on the court. And she may very well make it because there is a majority, but I have to believe that some of these conservative Southern Democrats might make a stink. Now, guys like Joe Manchin, who have reliably come to the defense of certain Republicans on issues that could affect him personally in his state based on his voting constituency, I'm not so sure will feel the same pressure to act here. But just read a few quotes from a recent article in the the Times. Quotes from Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. I've been researching the record of Judge Brown Jackson, reading her opinions, articles, interviews, and speeches. I've noticed an alarming pattern when it comes to Judge Jackson's treatment of sex offenders, especially those preying on young children. Prior to becoming a federal judge, Jackson served on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, which was a group created in 1984 for the stated purpose of reducing sentencing disparities and promoting transparency and proportionality in sentencing. Let me explain, um, because I know something about this. Most federal statutes, many federal statutes, have a sentencing range that runs from zero to 20 years. That's a huge spread. And so in different parts of the country, because the country is so different, you know, you get sentenced in Texas and you go before a good old boy that's hard on crime and you get sentenced in New York in federal court 
with a liberal judge that thinks everyone is a victim that should be a criminal, uh, you get completely different sentences. So you may get a man committing a federal robbery in New York gets four or five years and the same type of crime takes place in Texas and the man gets 10 or 15 years or the 20-year limit. So the idea was to reduce some of the discretion among these federal judges and come up with sentencing guidelines, sort of a, um, a chart where you know there were minimums that you couldn't go below and there were maximums that you can only go above if you justified it with certain things. Nice idea. It didn't work out too well. After a while, these sentencing guidelines almost began to operate as super statutes and were used uh, to great advantage by the government. Uh, in fact, the, one of the major problems of the sentencing guidelines was that in many cases, the statutes that were involved required the jury to find guilt or innocence based on the evidence as it re, uh, pertained to the actual statutory charge. When it became time for the person to be sentenced, the judge would decide very often what the relevant conduct was. So if a person was sentenced, let's say, for civil rights violations, something that might only carry a few years, the judge was charged with determining what the most relevant conduct was. Was it assault? Was it manslaughter? Was it murder? Was it this? Was it that? And they would sentence you for that. In a very, very landmark case back in January in 2005, Booker versus Fanfan, which dealt with a case in Washington State. Judge Scalia, the late Judge Scalia, writing for the majority, said that that manner of sentencing people was totally and completely unconstitutional. He said the classic definition of a courtroom situation is that the judge is the finder of the law. The jury is the finder of fact. Any fact, he said, which increases a defendant's criminal exposure to time, meaning increases his exposure to more time, must be found by a jury by a level of proof of beyond a reasonable doubt, not by a lone jurist by a preponderance of the evidence. Preponderance of the evidence is 50.1%. If it's a smidge over 50%, that's good enough to find you guilty. About a month later, another case came up dealing with the federal sentencing guidelines. And just to show you how protective these courts are of their own power, they didn't make the federal sentencing guidelines unconstitutional. And the way they did it was they made it advisory. Well, if we make it advisory and not mandatory, then it's okay. But even though it's advisory, the judges are really going to have to justify to us when they depart from the guidelines. So who's kidding who? They didn't do anything. Now, why did it take that, that direction? To show you why it's dangerous to have an ideologue. Well, the judge that Judge Jackson might replace, Judge Stephen Breyer, he was a lawyer on the Sentencing Commission. And he should have recused himself from the Fan Fan and Booker case and from 
the federal case in particular, if not from Fan Fan and Booker, because that's a pretty nice little feather in his resume, a feather in his cap. He had every self-serving interest to maintain the validity of those guidelines. Now, if a Republican had been in that position, they would have been screaming from the rafters for him or her to recuse themselves, but not for this piece of crap, Breyer. Now we find that Judge Brown was also on the Sentencing Commission, and we find still more. As a member of that commission, Jackson advocated for a drastic change in how the law treats sex offenders by eliminating the existing mandatory minimum sentences for child porn. Note there are mandatory minimums for drugs. Certain nonviolent drug offenses had a mandatory minimum of 60 months. Everything in the federal system is months. That's five years for those of you who don't want to do the math. That's heavy time for a nonviolent drug offense, maybe for a first-timer. But she doesn't want any mandatory minimums for child porn? Once she was appointed to the bench, Hawley went on, she put her troubling views into action. In every, he didn't say some, he said, in every single child porn case for which we can find records, Judge Jackson deviated from the federal sentencing guidelines in favor of child porn offenders. The senator then went on to list several cases, excuse me, involving possession of child pornography. And in every case, Jackson gave the convicted person a significantly shorter term in prison than the guideline calls for. Now, I can see maybe giving it in more than half, if you can justify it, but in every case, this doesn't strike me as someone who's operating on fact-based deviations from the guidelines or departures, as they're called, from the guidelines. This is a woman who's operating on ideologically-based departures from the guidelines. It doesn't matter who was in front of her. They're convicted of this statute. She's going to cut them slack. And the senator agreed. He said, this is a disturbing record for any judge, but especially one nominated to the highest court in the land. Protecting the most vulnerable shouldn't be up for debate. Sending child predators and pornographers to jail shouldn't be controversial. And it shouldn't. Now, today, she defended herself from some of these charges because Dick Durbin, the Democratic chairman from Illinois, asked her a question, and she explained her reasoning for giving lighter sentences, but not rejecting the contention that she had given lighter sentences. So she defended it, but she didn't deny it. According to her, sentencing guidelines were originally based off of child pornography received by mail, but that the advent of the Internet has caused challenges to the old guidelines. The guidelines was based originally on a statutory scheme and specific directives from Congress at a time when more serious child porn offenders were identified based on the volume, based on the number of photographs that they received in the mail. That made total sense before when we didn't have the Internet, when we didn't have distribution. But the way the guideline is now structured based on that set of circumstances is leading to extreme disparities in the system because it's so easy for people to get volumes of this kind of material now by computers. Well, the fact that it's easier to get volumes through the advent of modern technology doesn't mean that it's right to get it. It's still child pornography and you're still subsidizing it. What the hell is the argument for mercy? She went on, so it's not doing the work of differentiating 
who was a more serious offender the way that it used to. So the commission has taken that into account, and perhaps even more importantly, courts are adjusting their sentences in order to account for the changed circumstances, but it says nothing about the court's view of the seriousness of this offense. Could it be a different, darker reason? The fact that we find that so many of these people in power in high places are pedophiles. Could it be they want to protect them? Hawley further argued that Judge Jackson has held lenient views toward child porn since law school, before she was on the Sentencing Commission. In a piece she wrote while in law school, which Hawley produced and attached to a tweet, Jackson argued that public policy towards sex offenders and possession of child porn is driven by a climate of fear, hatred, and revenge. In the document, she called for abandoning abandoning child sex offender laws with a primarily punitive focus. Quote, judges should abandon the prevention punishment analyses that rely on the legislative intent and assess the excessiveness of a sex offender's statute's punitive effects in favor of a more principled approach to characterization. I don't even know what that happy horse shit means. All I can tell you is this. Before he died, the late great Rush Limbaugh commented on one of his broadcasts about an article that was written in, um, I think it was The Guardian, which is a British publication, where one of these academic types was saying that, you know, maybe pedophilia is not an abnormal thing at all. Maybe it's just a a new way of expressing love. It's all about love, right? And everybody said, oh no, that'll never be accepted. That'll never be normalized. And so he posed something. Now he wasn't trying to juxtapose that being gay or anything like that was uh, akin to child pornography. But rather, your reaction to it. What was your reaction 30 years ago when they said, one day you're going to see gay marriage in this country. Oh, that could never happen. But it happened. Now, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. But the point is, you thought it could never happen. Don't think, because we think that child pornography and pedophilia are wrong, that someday someone isn't going to make a really, really full-bore effort to try and characterize this as just a normal, alternative sexual expression. Because they are. And I think that's sick. I think it's demented. And I don't think a judge like this should be put on the Supreme Court. But the administration is defending it. On Patty's Day, Jen Psaki, during a press conference, rejected the assertions by Senator Hawley, saying that Jackson had a record on child sex offenders, was largely in line with government sentencing recommendations. That's wrong. What I would say, though, because there are others in the Senate who have made faulty accusations about Judge Brown Jackson's record, and specifically about her record on child sex crimes, just let me take the opportunity to clear that up. Not that most people have confusion about it, but in the vast majority of cases involving sex crimes, the sentences Judge Jackson imposed were consistent with or above 
what the government or the U.S. probation recommended. I don't think that's true. She comes from a law enforcement family. I don't know if that's true or not. I'll have to accept that. Um, but I still don't see it. I just don't see how you find it in your heart to give slack to people like this. Now, she needs all 50 Democrats to win. All 50. She needs 50, and then she can rely on Kamala Harris to hit the tie-breaking vote and give her 51, which would be the slimmest confirmation vote uh, in the history of the United States Senate. If Joe Manchin decides to defect and not vote, that would be 50 votes no against her. 49 votes yes, she loses. Because unless it's a 50-50 tie, well, I shouldn't say I shouldn't say 49. It would be 51. It would be 51 against her and 49 for her. Because there are 50 Republicans and 50 Democrats. And as long as it's 51 against her, Kamala Harris's vote doesn't matter. She only gets to vote when it's a 50-50 tie. And that's it. So we'll have to wait and see on that. I wish we had to wait and see on other things like what's going on in Ukraine. We're seeing that every day, and it's disgusting. But just to keep you informed, as we always do here at the Jamie Dury Podcast, there are shameless people out there, like the Cuomos, who are seeking to remain relevant, even though they should be burying their head in the sand and hoping that nobody ever finds them again. We have people like Joe Biden who don't know where, doesn't know where he is, appointing people who think the child pornographers should be given leniency. And we have press secretaries who are defending that. And anyone who opposes is considered a racist because Judge Jackson Brown is black. You can't make this stuff up. For the Jamie Dury Show podcast, I'm Jamie Dury. <laughs>